This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman, joins us today to talk about climate change and the administration's policies for addressing it. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, June 2013, uh, President Obama announced his plans for addressing climate change over the second half of his administration. Uh, what's been happening in the ensuing 15 months, and uh, is, he, is the administration on track with what they hope to accomplish? Um, we've been working really hard since the president first announced that climate action plan. And that plan has three parts, which involve almost all the agencies in the federal government. The first is to reduce the amount of carbon we emit. The second is to be able to better deal with the changes that climate change will bring, because we can slow it, but we can't stop it. And third is to better enlist the world in that effort. And if you look at just the last week, um, you see things in a lot of those different areas. Last week, we had a number of companies at the White House talking about how they could phase out their use of hydrofluorocarbons, increase their use of solar. And this week, the discussion at the United Nations will help advance that third prong of the climate action plan, engaging with the rest of the world. Recently, 12 states, mostly coal-producing states, have sued the EPA uh, claiming that the rules which I believe the administration would like to uh, impose on, on uh, air emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, would affect the coal-fired plants in these states uh, drastically, causing some of them to close. There's been protests among uh, by coal miners, for, uh, for example. Um, and so th these, are, these are charges which uh, are sort of the mirror image of that are the states that are feeling that this, the, the, either pollution or, and or greenhouse gases are sort of wafting over state lines into their territory and are trying to put a, 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 a stop to that. So where, where does this all stand? I mean, this is really mm -hmm. about jobs and climate change and uh, trade-offs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm an economist, not a lawyer, so let me give you an economic perspective, although I should say that the lawyers I talk to think this is clearly in the statute, the Supreme Court. Um, basically has said that in the past. But um, it's very much sound economic policy, and it's consistent with what we always try to do in environmental regulation, which is look at the costs and look at the benefits. Electricity is responsible for 32 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions. That's larger than any other source of greenhouse gas emissions. Most of those emissions are coming from coal-fired power plants. When we look at that, we think there's a number of things you can do to improve. You could have more efficient coal-fired power plants. You could shift to a transition fuel like natural gas. You could instead build um, capacity in renewables, or you could use um, less electricity. And the combination of those four tools means that we could bring our emissions down, and we could bring them down in a very cost-effective way. The benefits of bringing them down are many multiples of the cost, both direct health benefits like reductions in asthma and premature death, and then longer-term benefits from mitigating some of the potentially worst impacts of climate change. Okay. 
Um, so the standard argument oftentimes when you discuss environmental issues is that there has to be some kind of a trade-off between uh, the, the good effects that might come from, from these kinds of things uh, and the, the negative economic effects. So it's not to say there aren't economic mm -hmm. effects. You're saying that, the, the, that the, the good that is produced outweighs it. But how do you think about trading these things off? Because there would be some jobs lost, or maybe there's jobs created somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, obviously, uh, the, there are some winners and losers, even if, mm -hmm. as you argued, the winners might be outweighing the losers. Mm -hmm. Right. So first of all, I'd look at the costs and the benefits. And here, the benefits are in the range of 50 to $90 billion per year. And the costs are in the range of 8 or $9 billion per year. So it's many multiples benefit. Um, to cost ratio, I would then um, you know note that there's a lot of ways in which this will help the economy and create jobs, whether that's in natural gas or renewables, and you see jobs booming in those sectors of the economy. I certainly think that preventing asthma, premature death, respiratory illness, all of that actually can help make people more productive and help the economy. The IMF has a recent study that has um, documented that. And finally, most importantly, there's the economic costs of inaction. Those are really large. And the more we delay, the more they are. We wait an extra decade, the costs go up about 40%. We wait an extra decade and don't do as much, so the temperature goes up an extra degree centigrade, the costs go up by the equivalent of $150 billion for the United States. So there's a lot of cost um, you know, to inaction. When, uh projections are made for the growth of alternative energies. A lot of times you see kind of simple, straightforward projections. Um, solar energy will likely increase by a certain amount. You sort of see these straight line projections. And it, it strikes me a lot of times that, that that doesn't take into consideration unexpected breakthroughs, although there's maybe likely to be right. some breakthroughs, even if we don't know what they're going to be by definition, and also that you can reach a tipping point. So some are arguing that that's, what's, that's the point that we're at now. So solar energy costs per dollars per watt of electricity generated have been dropping something like 5 to 7 percent per year for 30 years, almost in a predictable way, um, to the point now that it's getting very close to parity in, in terms mm -hmm. of cost with fossil fuels. Uh, what's your view on, on this? Is, are we likely to see a sudden and dramatic increase uh, in, in reductions in cost that would cause people to want to use these alternate sources mm -hmm. more? Uh, and what is your growth projection for all, right. uh, alternative energy use over the next couple of decades? Right. So in the last few years, we've seen wind, um, power produced by wind, grow threefold and solar grow um, tenfold. And I expect they're going to continue to grow rapidly. Um, I'm not the best person to predict just how rapidly. But what I can tell you is if we have the right public policies in place, that would help. And those public policies are appropriate because you have an externality here, which is other forms of um, power produce carbon, which creates a worldwide harm. Um, renewables don't. And in the face of that externality, policies like the production tax credit we have in the tax code, the investment tax credit, that those two benefit wind and solar, and the clean um, power plan for existing power plants 
a lot of states are going to figure out how they want to adopt that rule and implement it. And I think many of them will create incentives for renewables. So I think all of this will help provide an impetus to um, accelerate the work on renewables. Okay, I would be remiss if I had the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors here and didn't ask him what you see coming ahead for the economy. So in terms of GDP growth over the next two, three, four quarters, what what do you think is going to happen? Uh, we've seen growth uh, speed up in the second quarter. The indications are good for the third quarter. I'd never want to venture a quarter-by-quarter quarter forecast, but one of the things I think we have going for us, and it's one that I hope we don't interrupt um, and mess up, is we've had a somewhat more predictable fiscal environment with less of the type of uncertainty that hurt the economy in the past. and a more neutral fiscal policy without the types of large fiscal contractions that were helping to go against our growth before. I think if we can continue that, then there's every reason to believe the private sector can continue to make um, you know, its contributions to growing our economy and bringing the unemployment rate down. And on a percentage basis for GDP, what kind of Well, I don't have a particular forecast for you, but we're still um, in the phase of growth where we get extra growth by bringing our unemployment rate down, putting more people to work and adding to our growth rate. Um, after we're fully recovered, then growth will only come from expanding the economy's potential, which depends more on the types of technologies we have at our disposal, the, the quality of the capital investments we're making. But still right now, um, we're, we're you know, in the final stages of the cyclical recovery and that will be boosting growth in the near term. There has been an interesting release of studies recently from the OECD, Organization of Economic Development, World Bank, the ILO, International Labor Organization. They're all looking at this question of wage stagnation, which has been a problem in the U.S., uh, but also around the world. So in a nutshell, the idea is that a lot of companies or economies are having relatively decent productivity gains, but those gains are not flowing much down to workers whose wages haven't increased much, if at all, uh, for a very long time. And that uh, has not only an effect on the workers, but it also has the effect of dragging down uh, the potential of the economy if, if uh, mm -hmm. people don't have enough money to spend. So what's, what's your view of that, particularly in, in the U.S.? What are some of the causes? What could some of the solutions be for that? Uh, well, I'd love to spend an hour with you on that topic. I think if you look at family incomes, um, there have been three important things that have happened. First, um, productivity growth matters a lot, and it isn't as fast as it was in the 50s and 60s. It's a lot faster than the 70s and 80s, but it still hasn't, uh, you know, it still could be faster. The second is the big increase in inequality that we've seen since the late 1970s. And the fact that a lot of the gains in the economy are going either to higher earners or to um, the business side of the ledger and the labor share of income has been falling since about 2000. And then the final issue is one that I don't think is fully appreciated, but even against those two forces, family incomes continued to rise in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that's because there was pressure on wages, but a lot more households had two earners rather than one as women um, came into the workforce in droves. Now that that, which was helping to compensate and offset some of these other changes, has stopped, 
and women's labor force participation has basically flattened out and started to fall, that means that we're feeling the productivity growth and the inequality you know, even more than the ways in which it was masked in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, which is creating, I think, a very serious challenge for the typical family's income and one that I think needs to be the central focus of economic policy, um, not one that has a one-part agenda or even a three-part agenda. It's more like a, as many parts of an agenda as you can, you can throw at the issue because it's a big one. What, what are just some of the potential tools that could be used uh, to address this problem mm -hmm. in your view? I think we need to expand our growth rate. We can do that with immigration reform, business tax reform, investing in infrastructure, improving education, expanding trade. Then I think we need to make sure that more of the benefits of those growth are shared across the board. Um, the minimum wage is one particularly powerful tool we have to do that. Another one is expanding the earned income tax credit for workers um, without children or non-custodial uh, parents. And, um, you know, but I think we just need to keep working on, you know, every aspect. And, you know, I'm not one, the person who says, um, let's just focus on distribution, let's focus on growth. I think we need to focus on both. And I think a lot of the instruments we have um, work in, on both of them uh, simultaneously. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.